He did. I think there's wisdom there. From what I understand about that is if we do not learn from past mistakes, that it is likely that we will, at some point in the future, uh, repeat and make the exact same mistakes. And so we learn from the mistakes of the past, and certainly that's a good way to learn things. It's always good to learn from other people's mistakes. Amen. We're usually not wise enough, though, we end up having to make them ourselves, don't we? The other way, though, that we can learn is to look at how people do things well and say, we did something good. I'm going to follow that agenda. I'm going to plot that same course. I'm going to go that same route. Today, we come to the sixth letter, the sixth of seven letters to seven different churches in the book of Revelation is the, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. We would, do why, we would be wise to listen to the instruction in this letter, not because there is a, a warning that we should refrain from, but rather the church of Philadelphia is one of only two churches mentioned that actually get it right. So the Church of Philadelphia is an example to us, not simply that we should say, oh, don't do that, like we see in the other in five of the seven churches, but we should emulate what they are doing. So the Church of Philadelphia is a valuable asset to us because it gives us a clue as to what to do, not so much what not to do. Let me give you a little background to the Church of Philadelphia because one of the things I hope we're discovering as we go through these letters is that oftentimes the background of the history or the culture of the city to which is being addressed is oftentimes very relevant to the message that Jesus gives to the church. And I think that the Church of Philadelphia, the background of what's going on in the church we will find to be an exceptionally important and relevant consideration to what's going on in this letter that Jesus writes to the church. We should... So let's go all the way back to 140 B.C. And in 140 B.C., the church of Philadelphia was founded. It was founded by a man named Atlas... The second, and it was named um, in adoration of his brother. He seemed to have a great concern or love for his brother. And of course, we all know that Philadelphia means um, brotherly love. And so, this Philadelphia is uh, known as the city of uh, brotherly love. It was a city that was in a very strategic location. It was strategic in that. It served as a thoroughfare, or perhaps you could say a gateway between east and west. And so those who would be coming from Asia and the east and traveling to the west, perhaps for commerce, bringing goods, uh, would come, would, Philadelphia might be a gateway uh, to bring their goods from the east to the west. Likewise, if you were going from the west in Europe to Asia and you wanted to bring your goods into Asia and trade with them, you very likely may pass through Philadelphia. And so not only would people bring their goods and their products to trade or to sell, but you can't help but bring your culture as well. And so those passing from east to west um, and those coming from west to east would not only bring products to sell, but they would bring their ideas, they would bring their philosophies, they would bring their religion, they would bring their culture, they would bring their morals and their values, they would bring their traditions, and those would all come passing through this area of Philadelphia. And so Philadelphia might be known as a gateway city, a door from the east to the west. Philadelphia was a city that was very fertile for growing crops. And many, many crops, especially grapes, uh, would be grown in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was fertile uh, in that it was... The soil was volcanic soil, which 
added to its fertility and so place of good crops. So if it was on a volcanic fertile, if the fertility was based to its uh, the volcanic nature of the soil, what does that tell you about the area surrounding Philadelphia? Any guesses? Volcanoes. Well, if you have read really anything about geology, plate tectonics, or anything like that, you'll know that along with volcanoes come earthquakes. California. California. And that, 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 that whole coast up, so you see a lot of that volcanic activity up through those areas. And, uh, so volcanic activity and earthquake activity seem to go hand in hand. So Philadelphia was susceptible to earthquakes. And in 17 AD, a major earthquake hit the area. Now, some of the other cities that we have talked about were affected by this earthquake in 17 AD. But Philadelphia took the brunt of it. And as a result of this, the, the city was leveled. It shook the city and buildings collapsed. As a result, the Roman government under Tiberius was very kind and, and suspended taxation and tribute, and so therefore Philadelphia was allowed to rebuild. And so they rebuilt the city, but how many, uh, I've never, anybody been in an earthquake? I've never been in one. A lot of you have. Now, from what I understand, if the earthquake is bad, well, what happened after the earthquake? Aftershocks. Look at just little earthquakes. Oh, why do we call them that? Well, I guess they are aftershocks. But this is more earthquakes. So after the big earthquake come a bunch of small earthquakes. And for years, Philadelphia was rocked by these aftershocks. And the people of Philadelphia, though they had rebuilt, were fearful of these aftershocks or another big earthquake and so they would go into the city and that's where they rebuilt their homes and, and their businesses so at night they would go outside of the city and sleep out in the countryside for fear of an aftershock or another big volcano coming and collapsing their buildings on top of them while they slept and so they would come into the city during the day and they would sleep and they would do their work during the day and in the, in the evening even though they had a home in the city they would go many would go outside of the city and sleep there in order um, out of fear because out of fear of the an aftershock collapsing their home on top of them that's a good idea and so because of this and because of the generosity of Tiberius, they renamed the city of Philadelphia. It became known as Neo Caesarea, which is New Caesar. Tiberius is the Caesar. Neo is Caesarea Caesar. Um, though the locals continued to call it Philadelphia. But the name got changed. So let me just see if I can summarize this a little bit. Many of the. Uh, the facts I got here come from William Ramsey's wonderful, wonderful book, written, I believe, in 1912, but it's called The Letter to the Seven Churches in Asia. He was an archaeologist and a New Testament scholar and has done some uh, excellent work um, in, in this regard. I think there's, there's a, it's even free online at this point. You can purchase the book, but if you want to, it is free online and it has some just wonderful background material. But let me just summarize uh, a little bit of what we just discussed about before we get into our, our, uh, our looking at the text. So Philadelphia is a gateway, a doorway city. It, it, it had great mission opportunity. People lived in fear of the day of calamity and many went outside the city to dwell as the city took on a new name. All of these facts are going to become important to our letter. We are going to learn that Jesus talks about an open door. He talks about people living in fear, dwelling outside of the city, and a renaming of a city, and, 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 and renaming of the people of God. The, the letter to Philadelphia is important to us. It's not just an old letter written to an ancient church 
in the late first century. It is an important city for us, or it is an important letter, because we are going to learn that we need to be grounded in God's word and be unmovable. Folks, I want you to understand culture, everything. There is nothing in your life that is firm and grounded. There is very little in your life that is absolutely certain and sure. God's Word and our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely certain. It is completely assured. We need the book. We need this letter to the Philadelphians to encourage us, to exhort us, to admonish us, and to remind us of the, the certainty and the assuredness and the firm foundation of maintaining a close identity with the Word of God and not moving away from what God has spoken. We need to be grounded in God's Word. If we are to be unmovable, folks, our cultures are changing. Society is changing. Our morals, our mores, our, eth- our ethics, they're all changing. And you will be moved as well unless you hold fast to the things of God. And as a church, we need to hold fast to what God has spoken. Let's go ahead and read our text and then delve into what God has spoken. So Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7 through verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come to this letter to the church of Philadelphia, and as we've noticed, these letters follow a general format. And, and they generally begin with an introduction of the risen and glorified Christ. So the very first thing in this letter, the letters, these seven letters, describe is the risen and glorious Christ. And in this letter, we see Christ described, first of all, as holy and true. <coughs> These are both divine attributes. Isaiah constantly talks about God, Yahweh, being the Holy One. And we see over in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, we see, and they cry out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging your blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is a, a hymn spoken to Yahweh who sits upon the throne and they call him holy and true. And here Jesus declares himself to be the one who is holy and true. He is identified in himself as the Lord God, this is a divine attribute that Jesus is ascribing to himself. That he is holy. That he is set apart. He is unlike all others. When we think about holiness, we need to keep that in mind. This idea of separateness, of otherness, as well as purity. Jesus is other. And he is true. Jesus being other, being divine, being set apart, we can trust that he will lead us to God. And being true, we know that he will not deceive us. 
He is set apart to God. He is faithful. That is, He is genuine. He is not false. You can trust Him to lead you to God. And you can trust that His leading you to God will not be in vain. We need to begin our study with the book, in the book to the letter of Philadelphia with asking ourselves this question, what or whom are you entrusting yourself to? Are you entrusting yourself to yourself? Have you ever deceived yourself? Have you ever made, have you ever led yourself the wrong way? Have you ever followed your gut feeling only to discover, oh my goodness, that was the wrong way to go? Have you ever entrusted yourself to somebody else and been led astray? Have you ever trusted in your heart and ended up in a perilous place? Jesus is saying, I am the Holy One, I am the True One, and I will never lead you into that place. To what or to whom are you entrusting yourself? It is my position this morning that you would entrust yourself to the One who declares Himself to be holy and true. He will never lead you astray, and He will never lead you in vain, and He will never be. And there will be no lie or fallacy where He takes you. Jesus is the Holy One. He is the True One. We also learn that Jesus has the key of David and he opens and no one shuts and he shuts and no one opens. So what in the world is he talking about? I have the key of David. This is a direct allusion to Isaiah chapter 22.22. It is speaking of an individual, a servant in the house of David, a servant by the name of Eliakim. Here's what it says. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his, that is Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Let me give you a basic idea of what's going on here. Basically, Eliakim, a servant in, in the household of David, is given the authority to open the house of the house of the king to those whom he wishes and he has the authority to shut the door of the king's house to those whom he chooses to shut the door. Eliakim had, was given authority to control access to the king's presence. We should note that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 Jesus also has the keys of death and hell. So here's what we have. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus has the keys of death and hell. And here, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. And the one who he opens the door to, he will not shut. You cannot shut that door. You see, Jesus possesses both keys. The resurrected Jesus, the resurrected Lord, holds both power to save and power to judge because He is Lord of all. This will be important to those who are in the city of Philadelphia because we are going to learn that they, there are people who claim to be Jews, but they are not. We know that they're not. In fact, Jesus even calls them a synagogue of Satan. Jews who became Christians in Philadelphia were shut out of the synagogue. But when Jesus opens the door to his kingdom, no one can shut them out. There is no power in hell. There is no demon, no devil, not even Satan himself who can shut the open door to the kingdom that Jesus provides. There is no sin that can slam the open door that Jesus opens. Jesus says, I have the keys to the kingdom. And I open. And when I open, you can't shut it. To that we say, Amen. On the other side, the one to whom Jesus has shut the door, there is no pleading. There is no ration. There is no crying out. That will enable the door to be open. I'm so reminded of the parable of 
of the ten virgins. Five went in. And it didn't matter about the other five, no matter how long they fled, no matter how much they said, oh, open to us, I don't know you. Jesus has the authority. And so I would exhort you to entrust your life to the one who has the keys of the kingdom. He has the keys of death and hell. He has the keys to the kingdom. And if he has opened the door, I want to give you the assurance. I want you to understand that nobody can shut that door. Nobody. I want you to understand that if you reject the salvation that Christ offers, on that last day, no pleading, no begging, no cajoling, no acts of penance can open that door. And so today is the day of salvation and now is the acceptable time. And I would call you, if you've never made a decision to entrust Jesus with your eternal life, this would be the day. And I will tell you this, that if you are born from above, there will be no door that can be shut to keep you out of the kingdom that Jesus opens. Jesus then goes on to describe three promises that are given to the church in Philadelphia. It's interesting to note that, again, as I mentioned earlier, Philadelphia, there is no rebuke. Remember, most of our letters, there is a, a commendation. In other words, you've done this well, and then there's a rebuke. However, I have this against you. Two churches have no rebuke. Philadelphia is one of those churches in which Jesus does not rebuke them at all. He just simply gives them promises. I know your deeds, and then he promises them blessing. Before we get to the promise, I, I want to give you the reason why he makes the three promises. There is a reason why Jesus gives these promises, and the reasons are this. You have kept my word. You have kept my perseverance. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance... The reason for the promises that Jesus is giving them is because you have kept my word. Because you have kept my perseverance. You have not denied my name. When the shifting sands of culture begin to move and begin to tempt you to move away from the firmness that is the word of God, We, as people of God, need to stand firm and keep His word and keep that perseverance and not be moved. Remember, we can learn from those who do well. Philadelphia did well. We would do well to listen to what Philadelphia did. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Faithful public witness in the face of persecution, in the face of slander, and you have not budged. You've kept my word. When everybody around you said, I can't believe you flat earthers. You've kept my word. When you said you're out of touch and out of date, you've kept my word. When they called you names and said things that were false about you, you've kept my word and you've kept my perseverance and you have not denied my name. That's the type of church we need to be. He says, and you have a little power. This is not a rebuke. This is just a reference to their visible stature. Remember last week, the church we looked at? This was a church that externally was glorious. It was externally, a, it, had the, it had the appearance of life. But in reality, it was dead. This was a church that appeared to have little power. This was a church that perhaps people walked by on their way to the big church or to the good-looking church from last week. 
Boy, what a sad little congregation. I feel sorry for that pastor over there. Probably nobody goes there. What a poor little congregation. It must be unfortunate for that. Too bad they don't know about our great church down the road here. Jesus said that great church down the down the road only had the appearance of life but in reality it was dead and this church Jesus says it appears you have little power but I want you to understand that does not stop you from doing great things this was a church that had little power it was small it was seemingly insignificant in influence but its seemingly insignificance did not hinder it from accomplishing great things for the kingdom size and resources were not a measure of strength they did much with what they had this was a little church small in influence they did not get invited to conferences they were probably not in Christianity today's 50 top influential churches. But Jesus says this was a church that was doing much with little power. This was a church that was having a, an impact in my kingdom. I want to be that church. We can do without all of the facades of the church at Sardis. Because inside it was dead. Oh, it looked good. But inside it was dead. This was a church that looked dead. But Jesus says, Oh, you have a little power, but that does not hinder you from doing great things for the kingdom. And because of their perseverance, because they have kept their word, out of that flow three wonderful promises. And we would do well to consider the promises given to this seemingly insignificant church and the first one is this I know your deeds behold I have put before you an open door which no one can shut I have put before you an open door well then of course that brings up a question doesn't it what is this open door well there are a few but just like any interpretive challenge, there are all kinds of ideas, most of them silly, but a few good ones. The first, I think, uh, relevant one that we have to consider is, is this open door speaking of missionary activity? And the reason we have to consider that is because in at least three places in the Bible, um, there is a reference to an open door being being referring to missionary activities. So Paul would say, an open door was provided for me to go to such and such a place. I'll give you the references. 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, and Colossians 4.3 uh, refer to an open door as a, an opportunity to do ministry. And how many of you have said something similar? You know, the, door, the Lord opened the door for us to do such and such. The Lord opened the door for us to go into this school. Or the Lord opened the door for us to go to this city or to this town or to this country. Or the Lord opened the door for me to speak to my neighbor. We, we use that exact same language and so I think that's a really really good consideration but I think there's a better one I think that the open door has to do with access to the kingdom of God and the reason I think so is because John also, John in chapter 4 verse 1 will again refer to an open door. It was an open door into heaven itself. John was granted access into the very presence of God. And so I think that given that John speaks of an open door being access into the presence of God, that when John again speaks of this as an open door, we should pay attention to what, how John uses the term. And John uses the term to refer to access to the kingdom. It also fits the context of the key imagery, right? A key to open the, gain access to the very kingdom of God. I think it all fits. So... Well, I think the missionary activity is a, a valid consideration, I believe more accurately that what Jesus is referring to here is the promise, because you've kept my word, because you've kept my per perseverance, the kingdom of heaven is open to you. Now that doesn't exclude missionary activity. 
obviously, if we're keeping God's word, we are making disciples of all the nations. We are bearing witness and giving a hope for the, or giving a, a, a reason for the hope that is within us. But I think that Jesus is saying, I have opened a door to you, a door to the kingdom, and no man on earth, no demon in hell can shut that door. And it's open to you. The kingdom of the messianic king is now open, and no power on earth and no power of hell can thwart that. So the first thing, because you have kept my word, my kingdom is open to you, and nobody can shut that door. Praise God. But there's another promise. It is a promise of vindication. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Church in Philadelphia was opposed by the Jewish community. This is, of course, evidenced by the fact that he doesn't call it just a synagogue, it's a synagogue of Satan. It may be a synagogue. They may declare Yahweh's name there, but because they have, they have denied Yahweh's messianic king and broken the covenant, they are a synagogue and de- destroyed and defamed and persecute the people who follow the covenant king. They are now synagogue of Satan. Jesus says this, I will cause these opponents to declare to you Philadelphians, I will cause these opponents to come and bow before you and say you are right. I want you to understand, this is not simply about the Philadelphians being able to say, I told you something. This is about vindication. Have you ever been falsely accused for faithful keeping of God's word? Have you ever been falsely accused even though you'd done nothing wrong? I'll share a story that I don't share very often. I know that I have shared it in church before, but it's not one that, that I, I share often. When, when I was in high school, maybe a sophomore, perhaps a junior, I forgot exactly when, but, but when I was in high school, I was sitting in class and a couple plain clothes policemen came into the room and I was kind of thinking, oh, I haven't done anything wrong, I wonder who's getting busted today. And they called my name. And I was charged with an extremely serious crime. Now, I was charged with three very, very serious crimes. I was guilty of a lot of things, but I was not guilty of those three things. The text asked me to take the picture, we'll put you in the picture lineup, the photo lineup, so that the victim of the crime can either exonerate you or. Can you do this? And I said, oh, absolutely. This is going to get me off the hook. Woohoo! I was picked out of the lineup. You have to understand, I think my parents were wanting to believe that their son had not done these horrific things. But you got to be wondering, all of the evidence, the victim of crime is saying that you are the one who did this. And they picked you out of the line. One day I was, uh, or one evening I was at a, a desert party. And the victim was also at this same party. I, I didn't know the victim at all. Wouldn't have recognized him in a million years. And this individual saw me from a distance and said, that's not the person who did this. That's not the one who committed the crime. And the next day, 
called the police and said, he's not the one. And called my parents and said, your son is completely innocent. I'm sorry. That day I was vindicated. This was not an I told you so moment. This was a time of rejoicing. That the truth came out that yes, I was was innocent and I had not done what people said I had done. Jesus says, you've kept my word and there will come a day when the enemies of the cross will stand and say, we were wrong. Jesus is the Lord. You are not a bigot. You are not a hypocrite. You are not what we said you were. You were right. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. Because you've kept my word, even the enemies of the cross will come and say, not only is Jesus Lord, but he obviously loved you and we were wrong. And they will know, Jesus says, that I have loved you. Not only will the Father say you are innocent before me, but even those who claim that you wrong them will say, we've never wronged them. This is the promise to the Church of Philadelphia. If you've ever been accused of for faithful keeping of God's word, I want you to understand that God does God will declare you not guilty, and there will come a day when even the enemies of the cross will say that was not the case, and Jesus obviously loved you. That's the second promise. The kingdom is open, and even your enemies will know that Jesus loves you. And third promise, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world and test those who dwell on the earth. This is a challenging, this is an interpretive challenge, so here we go. Let me first begin by what is this? This is most definitely, this judgment is a judgment of unbelievers. We'll first begin with the what. This judgment that is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. If you take that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, and you look it up in the book of Revelation, you will see that it always refers to pagan unbelievers. So, whatever this is talking about, it is a judgment that is coming upon those who deny the cross and deny the Lamb. It is a standard phrase for those who persecute the Lamb of God and His people. And so then we come to this idea. Behold... Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world. I will keep you from the hour of testing. We have to decide what is this. For many, this is... Many would understand that this is referring to a secret rapture that occurs prior to the Great Tribulation. Alright? You all aware of the Great Tribulation? There's going to be this period of time in which tribulation is not only severe in its intensity, but I think also in its extent. But prior to that, the teaching goes, is that Christians will be removed from that situation through Christ snatching them away through what is called the rapture. Those who hold to that view are called pre-tribulationists. They pre before the tribulation comes the rapture. As many of you know, I do not hold to that position. Um, My goal here is not to convince you of my view. And I know, because I know many of you would hold to that view. In fact, probably the bulk of evangelical Christianity today holds to that view. However, for 1,850 years, the bulk of Christianity did not hold to that view. They held to mine. (laughs) 
So we may disagree on that, and I'm going to come back to that. But here's what we do agree on, and here's the non-negotiable. I believe that the, the, the timing of the rapture would be, a, would be a secondary matter. In other words, we can disagree on it and still attain eternal life. Here's a thing, though, that I think we need to keep in mind, because this is what we all agree on. Because you have kept my word. Whatever, however you understand this, this is occurring because the people have kept my word. We need to keep that in mind, that this, these promises are being bestowed upon these individuals because they have kept my word and my perseverance. So here's my view. My view is this, that these people are not being taken out of tribulation, but they are being kept through the tribulation or the trial. And here's why. You ready for some grammar geek? <laughs> this Greek phrase, tereo ek. Ek is out from, and tereo is to lift up or to keep from. This phrase is used one other time. This exact phrasing is used one other time in the Bible. Not surprisingly, it's used by the Apostle John, who also wrote the book of Revelation. And he uses it, um, well actually, he records Jesus himself using this phrase. And it's found in John chapter 17, verse 15, and it goes like this. I do not ask you, the Father, to take them, the disciples, out of the world, but to keep them, there it is, to keep them from the evil one. Not to remove them out of the situation, but to keep them from, or to keep them through the trial. So I would understand this to say that what Jesus is talking about here in this letter is that what I'm going to do, there is a trial that is about to come and I'm going to keep you through it. I think we also get great um, understanding also from um, Revelation chapter 7 where we read in verse there is this multitude of individuals around the throne from every tribe and tongue and nation and language and John's angelic guide says do you know who these are and John says I don't and this is what he said I said to him my lord you know and he said to me these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb in other words, there are believers who actually come out of the tribulation. They actually endure the tribulation. They die in the tribulation. My understanding, then, is that Jesus keeps them through these trials and not even death can separate them. God keeps His people More often than not, God keeps his people through trial rather than takes them out of trial. Remember when the plagues came on Egypt? They were kept through it. Remember when the floods came upon the world? No one wasn't taken out of the world. He was preserved through it. Even if death comes upon you in that, not even that can close the open door that Jesus has, has secured. Not even death. So it is my understanding that what's going on here is that Jesus says, no matter what, I will keep, there's a trial coming and I will keep you through it. Perhaps that means I will protect you and you won't be affected by its harmful effects or it could even be the fact that even if you die, it's still protecting you. Because once you die in this, you still belong to me, and you win. So there is this promise of protection. The 
big question that I have is when does all this happen? When is this hour of trial that Jesus says is coming upon the whole world? Well, of course, the obvious, our, our minds could immediately rush to the idea, well, this is this great trial that's coming upon the whole world. It must be the great tribulation. And I think that's a fair answer, but I really wrestle with that. I wrestle with it for a number of reasons. The first reason I wrestle with it is because Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from something. In other words, this great trial that is coming upon the whole world is something that this church in 90 AD is, is going to be kept from. So why are they being promised protection from an event that's not going to occur for 2,000 years? If this is the great tribulation, why is he promising the Philadelphian church that I'm going to keep you out of a trial that's still not going to happen for another 2,000 years? Or more? That doesn't seem to make sense to me. This is the great tribulation. It doesn't occur during the time this church exists. So why would they promise protection from an event they're never going to experience? That's my big thing that I wrestle with. It's obvious, though, that this is a great trial. It seems to only last for an hour. Perhaps it's a short period of time. But it's coming upon the whole world. So the whole world's going to experience it, right? Oh, let me confuse you. Because it's possible it's coming on the whole world. Very possible. Do you remember in Luke? Luke was talking in chapter 4 about the census taken. Remember that census? And he says, and it affected who? The whole world. Do you remember when Agabus was prophesying about the famine in Jerusalem? And what did he say? It's coming upon the whole world. Well, we know it's coming upon the whole world, and we know that the census, this is a figure of speech to say it's going to affect a lot of people. So, now that I've confused you, let me give you this. I don't have a real answer for that. All right, I'm going to claim ignorance. I just don't know. I'm rushing. I'm not willing to make a stand on any of those positions. I will affirm. If you have a firm position, I'm willing to say. You know, you could be right. I just got too many questions. Here's what I know. So now that I've confused you, let me give you some assurance. Here's what I know. Is that when trial comes, whether it comes to your life individually or it comes upon the whole world, literally the whole world, that the one who keeps his word and stands as perseverance, Jesus will hold on to. And you will not be shaken, you will not be moved, and even if it costs you your life, the next moment of consciousness is standing in the very presence of the Holy One who purchased you. I checked you through. That's what I know. So, some of the details here, I'm willing to learn from you, and I'm claiming I don't know it all. I got questions, but here's what I do know. The one who keeps his word will be protected. That I know. Even in death. And this church remained faithful, and by the way, this church remains today. And here's a quick summary of what we've learned because of their faithfulness, because they have kept the word of Christ and have persevered, this church has access to the kingdom of Jesus. They have been promised vindication and they will be safely taken through any trial that comes their way. That's the promise. I want that promise. I think that promise is for us. But wait, there's more. There's even more promises to the overcomer. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Clearly figurative, isn't it? He's not going to make him a pillar. (laughs) And they will not go out from it anymore. When you see ruins of cities, what do you end up seeing most of the time? Pillars, they stand, they are unmoved. Earthquakes come, shake the ground, devastate everything, but you stand. Your culture moves, it shifts, everything is fluid, nothing lasts forever. But you, 
I will make you a pillar. Folks, we live in a very transient community. I don't want to bring fear into your lives, but we are facing a very difficult summer. And fire can come up here and destroy every single thing you have. Jesus says, you will not be moved from my Your house may be destroyed, but you, I will make you a pillar of my kingdom. And you will not go out from it anymore, right? What were the people doing? They were going out from the city to sleep because of fear of collapse from the ground moving. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom, the ground doesn't move. You don't need to go out into the countryside. You stay right in the city where I dwell. You stay right there. No earthquake, no famine, no fire, no hurricane. Nothing shakes my kingdom. When you are in my kingdom, you are secure. I'll make you a pillar. That's the promise. And I'll give you new names. Those who overcome will be fully possessed by God. They will have the name of my God. The name of my city will be written on them. Just think, New Jerusalem. That's your address. And it's, you know, just like a little kid. Mom is writing the dress on his hand. Just in case wanders off. Jesus says, my city's name. Just, he won't wander off. But there is no confusion of where you live. And the name of my God and my name will be upon you. Those who overcome will be identified with me. I will own you. you will be, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the promise. I'll conclude with this. First of all, we need to be people who keep God's word faithfully. And we need to understand that God knows how to save his people. God knows how to vindicate his people. And God knows how to protect his people. And folks, if you persevere in his ways and hold fast to his word, you will be saved, you will be vindicated, and you will be protected from whatever comes your way. Let's stand and let's pray.